0: Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for who you are. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the power of your presence. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. Thank you for covering us today. Cover my lips, Lord. Cover our ears, cover our hearts by the blood of Christ in Jesus name. Amen. I want to talk this morning first service. I want to talk about reading the Bible like a Christian. Reading the Bible like a Christian. And so I'm going to look at several verses about the Bible that shows us how to look at the Bible. So I'll be using the Bible, (laughs) demonstrating, I I guess. Um, By the way, if you're coming Wednesday night, I just want to let you know I'm going to be out of town, Uh, Nick and Joanne, did the healing service last time, and it was powerful. We had several people healed before we even prayed for people. Julie got healed. Uh, I know a number of people got healed, my wife. Um, so it will be powerful, but Julie and I are getting away for a couple days. One of the things I committed to do was um, just get more downtime, vacation time this year. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing. Um, oh, really? Give me just a second here. One of my verses got away from me. Psalm 119.105, I'm just going to quote it for you. Psalm 119.105, Your word, O Lord, is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And then I want to look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Let's do Hebrews, Nah, let's not do that. We'll do that second service. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Man, God's presence is good. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. So learning in a first century context especially is relational. It's not done apart from relationships. And Paul's talking about himself. He's saying, the people that you heard the gospel from, be assured of it because you know the lives of those that you learned it from. So he's not referencing, he's referencing that discipleship process as an authority to Timothy before he talks about the scriptures. So he's assuming that Timothy is grounded in the gospel. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the Holy Scriptures that Paul's talking about, it's not the New Testament, it's the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament, what the Jews call the Tanakh. Right, Because he's writing the New Testament when he's writing this letter. So the New Testament didn't come into existence as we know it for 400 years from the time of Christ. We didn't have our first Bibles until Constantine in 400 A.D., roughly. They didn't even necessarily have a list of scriptures that were definitive New Testament scriptures for them before that. So think about that. The church existed, flourished for four centuries without what you have in your life as a Bible using the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, what's interesting is that Paul says specifically, now some some translations say all Scripture is inspired by God, but literally in the Greek it's breathed by God or God breathed. Now, the foundation of the Old Testament Scriptures is the, the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, those, right? And so in the book of Genesis, it's interesting that Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed because the first time you see the breath of God in Scripture is when God is breathing into Adam the breath of life. So he uses that imagery on purpose because you have to understand, if you're going to read Scripture like a Christian, you have to understand that all Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, is inspired is God-breathed. It has a divine origin and it contains the breath of God in it, but it also is human. That it comes through Adam or through the race of Adam. So it is a collaboration between God and Adam. And unless we honor both the divine element and the human element of the scriptures, we miss the beauty of the scriptures and we actually deny the scriptures and We miss the reality of the incarnation, because the incarnation of Christ is divinity and humanity coming together. So you have to hold the divinity of Scripture with the humanity of Scripture in tension. That's what Paul's saying. And if you do that, the scriptures become profitable for you for instructing you. They're not it's not totally divine. (laughs) It's divinely human. It's divinely inspired, but it came through human writers. And it came from a fallen race of people. Now, come with me to Luke's Gospel. And we'll look at two passages in Luke's Gospel and we'll see where we end up. Luke chapter 9. And I'm going to read kind of some lengthy stuff here. Actually, for the sake of time, just to put it in context. In Luke chapter 9, we see that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God. And once the disciples get a revelation of who Jesus is, he begins to tell them about his mission. And he describes his mission in terms of dying upon a cross and says that if anyone wants to follow him, they need to take up the cross and follow him. Now, in a first century context, remember, the, the cross didn't mean what it means to us today. It wasn't a symbol of religion. It was a s- political symbol. And the cross was reserved for uh, political uh, people that we would usurp Rome and try to establish their own kingdom. Yeah. So Israel is an oppressed people. <laughs> Israel is under Roman occupation. And their confidence in Messiah, Peter had just confessed, you're the Messiah. And what they thought Messiah would do would be to liberate them from their exile and reestablish the glory of the Davidic kingdom, basically. That's what Messiah was supposed to come come and do. And so you remember David was a very violent... Warrior. The kingdom of Israel was established by violence. It was established by the bloodshed of all the Canaanites that were dwelling in the land. And so here they're in the land, but they don't possess the land. The difference between being in it and possessing it. So to a first century Jew, they're still in exile. And so they're waiting for a Messiah that's going to lead an army against Rome so that they'll be delivered. And God once again will be enthroned, and the way God will be enthroned is through military might and victory. And Jesus overturns all of that. So they get their expectation from reading the law and the prophets that this is what's going to happen, and Jesus comes and says, No, it's not gonna be like that, it's gonna be the exact opposite of what you think. I'm not coming as the victor, I'm coming as the victim. So he's overturning it, right? So then we pick up in verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. The appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, (laughs) which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So they spoke with him about his sufferings, about his exodus, about his death. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he did not know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and they did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Now come with me to Luke 24. And this is the last part that we'll read. Luke 24, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> Interesting story because in verse 13, and I'm not going to read the whole passage because I don't want to, you know, I just don't want to do that, but I want to give you context. So in verse 13, there's two disciples who are walking along a road and Jesus appears to them and they don't recognize him. Mark's gospel tells us specifically that he appeared to them in a different form. His face was changed. They could not recognize him. It's important to see what Luke is doing here. As they talked with each other, they discussed the, the things about you know, what had happened. And Jesus draws near to them. He says, what are you talking about? And they said, that everything that just happened in Jerusalem. And he says, what things? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. He was mighty in word and deed. And we thought that He would be the one who would redeem Israel. We thought that He would be the Messiah. But He's been crucified And he's died, and now we don't know even where his body is. And Jesus answers them in verse 25, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. And as they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued as if He would go further. And they uh, urged Him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So He went in to stay with them. And when He had took, uh, when he set, was at the table with them, He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Him, and He disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning with us while He talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? (laughs) Here's what you need to see. The Old Testament is inspired, but it is a closed book until Christ Himself opens the book to you. And He opens it based upon His sufferings, who He was, His sufferings, and that He had to enter into glory. So that literally, what he does, what 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 Luke is showing us is really the transfiguration of the Old Testament. That's really what Luke's showing us in twenty-four, but he's tying it back into seventeen because seventeen is crucial. The Mount of Transfiguration. We don't talk about it in our Ever In evangelical church, charismatic church, we never talk about the transfiguration. But the early church talked a lot about the transfiguration because it was a pivotal, pivotal event. In fact, Mark's gospel, which most scholars think was the first gospel that was written, in Mark's gospel, it's central, literally. You have at the beginning of Mark's gospel, you have Jesus being declared in his baptism as the Son of God. At the end of Mark's gospel, you have him dying on the cross and the Roman centurion saying, Surely this man was the Son of God. And in the middle of Mark's gospel, you have, right smack dab in the middle, you have the transfiguration where God Himself in His voice declares Jesus to be the Son of God. So that the centerpiece of the gospel is the transfiguration. Now, What is the transfiguration? The transfiguration is the glorification with divinity of the absolute humanity of Jesus. To be a Christian is to have a proper understanding of who Christ is. And a proper understanding of who Christ is is to understand that in the person of Christ, you have God, fully God... Made man fully man. That God's purpose, when He created, see, it's interesting when when we're told that, when we're told about creation, when we're told about Adam being created, it's very interesting because God says this He says to Himself, (laughs) Let us bring forth man in our image and after our likeness. In our image, after our likeness. Two things. Image, likeness. Right? But then the next verse tells us, And God created man in his own image. After his own image, male and female. So in the image of God, it's both masculine and feminine. So Adam was created in the image of God, but he was not created. Created, he did not yet have the likeness of God. The image of God was the foundation of who Adam and Eve were as human beings, but the likeness of God was something that would have to come upon them through participation with Him. So that God's plan was for Adam and Eve to take on the likeness of God through participation with him. Or, let me say it this way to glorify humanity with himself. So God created man in his own image so that he could glorify him with his own divinity. So that he could literally, it's hard for people to hear, but so that he could literally deify humanity with his own divinity through a relationship of union. So where the serpent comes in the story, where the serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve is at the tree of knowledge, but he tempts them with likeness. He tempts them really with something they did not have yet. God knows in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you will become like Him, knowing good and evil. Or judging for yourself, or deciding for yourself what is good and what is evil. So the tree of knowledge represents Adam in the image of God, trying to become like God on his own through the acquisition of the knowledge of what's right and what's wrong. And eating at the tree of good and bad caused death because if he knew good and bad, if he, if he had God's wisdom or God's knowledge, he would not need God. That's, that's, the, that's the lie. The lie is if you grow enough in wisdom and you grow enough in knowledge, particularly ethical, moral knowledge, then you won't need God anymore to reflect His likeness. So study... To find out what pleases God or what God is like, and then put that likeness on, and you fulfill the devil's desire for your life. And call it Bible study. Because you're not reading it like a Christian. So Adam (laughs) falls. And the first thing he he does in the fall is he distorts the voice of God. He says, I heard your voice. Where are you, Adam? Well, I heard your voice. Had Adam never heard God's voice before? We know he'd heard God's voice before. Because God was the one that told him, don't eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It didn't cause him any fear then, but now because he's eaten at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he sought to be independent, he sought to become like God, independent from God. He sought God's likeness without God himself. So now he distorts the voice of God and he moves away from the presence of God. And God begins to call out, where are you? Adam, And that statement sums up the entirety of the Old Testament. That the purpose of the Old Testament is to locate where you are in fallen Adam so that it can make you wise concerning the salvation that comes in Christ. So the, all the prophets, Moses wrote prior to... To glorification. Elijah, who represents all the prophets, wrote prior to glorification. So the entire Old Testament is prior to any glorification. So the Israelites get this expectation of Christ that is wrong because the book's closed. Because it has not yet been glorified. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 9, it's where I was going to go earlier, but I didn't think I have time, but I'm having more time than I thought. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 9, how, how many of you have ever heard the verse, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin? And we use that to talk about the atonement. Even though the context of it, we've we got to look at this, we got time. Let's look at the context in Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9. verse twenty two hebrews nine twenty two in fact the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness in the original language there is no remission of sin twenty two verse nine chapter nine verse twenty two now can we put it in its context let's put it in its context <laughs> Verse 18, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses, look at this, when Moses had proclaimed every word of the law or the teaching to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way He sprinkled the blood with blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in His ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. What's the first thing that He cleanses with blood? The scroll. The book. Why? Because it had to be cleansed. Because the sin in it had to be remitted. Because it's not coming from glorified people. It still has the breath of God in it. It's still inspired. It's still profitable. It's still wisdom in it. But it's not perfect. And it has to be cleansed. And even Moses shows it in type in the beginning. So that what happens at the transfiguration, really, the reason... See, we, I, we have to get this. Scripture is not the definitive revelation of who God is. The definitive revelation of who God is, is the Son. And we are not called as believers to have a relationship with a book. We are called to have a relationship with a person. And if we go to the book trying to discern good and evil from the book, independently of living in union with the person of Christ, we're eating at the tree of knowledge and fulfilling the serpent's desire for our humanity. So Jesus' humanity on the Mount of Transfiguration is transfigured. <laughs> and when he's transfigured, his form changes. And when his form changes, and the transfiguration, or the glorification, so in other words, the glorification that was supposed to happen in Adam happens to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And in his glorified humanity, there appears light now, and in this light, there appears the law And the prophets glorified. Because Luke says very specifically that Moses and Elijah were also glorified. So they were also transfigured. So in other words, the testimony of the law and the prophets is now also being transformed and transfigured by the person of Christ. Now watch what happens. <laughs> I, said this, I said this Thursday night. Sometimes I say stuff and I just think, Oh, Jesus, Aaron, where do, you, where do you come up with this stuff? This is just me. but This is a metaphor. This is a metaphor, okay? I'm speaking metaphorically. Who? Okay, so at the Tree of Knowledge, you have an order. You have the Tree of Knowledge. You have the serpent speaking to the woman. So the serpent is tempting the woman, but the woman is tempting the man. The man is tempted by the woman, not the serpent. So she follows the serpent, and the man follows the woman. Do you ever wonder why it says that God put a deep sleep on Adam when he opened up his side to form the woman? It says... God put Adam to sleep. We're never told, now I know, but just bear with me, we're never told that Adam wakes up. So what happens is, you ever had a dream that you thought was really, really, really real? And you wake up from it and you're not sure for a moment there, what was real and what wasn't? Like, you ever have a dream that maybe somebody died and you wake up and you think, did they die? And you had the funeral and everything in the dream and then you wake up and think, did they really die? Was that just a dream? Was that real? Right? I think that God is showing us something. I think God is showing us that when we eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we can be so sure we're right. We can be so sure that what we have is real and true and that there's substance to it but the reality is is that we've gone to sleep and we're in a dream world that all of us maybe all of us were born into Adam's nightmare and Christ came to wake us up perhaps we all fell asleep in the fall of Adam to the reality of what God was like and so we had symbols in our dreams of the law, the corporate dream of humanity. Um, God sent Moses. He sent the prophets. He sent all these things to try to tell us this isn't the real world. There's something beyond this world. You're living in a nightmare, but there's, a, there's something better. That you're, One of these days you're going to wake up. And Jesus came to wake us up. So, Moses and Elijah appear in their glorified fashion, watch this, talking to Jesus about his sufferings. And the three disciples, the three apostles, are sleepy. They're sleepy. Why is there three of them? They're sleepy. He only brought three disciples. They're sleepy. But when they're fully awake... All they're left with is Jesus. They, they, and they, they see the Father, they see the glory of the Father comes over them now. The likeness of God comes over them now. And here's what they hear in the cloud This is my Son, hear him. Why? Because they weren't hearing him. Because he was telling them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die on a cross, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And Peter got so upset, that in one gospel we're told that he takes Jesus and angrily shakes him and says, no, this can't happen to you. So the next day, Peter gets taken to school. (laughs) Or eight days later, Peter gets taken to school along with two other people. And when they're in this experience, Moses and Elijah fall away. And they don't see Moses and Elijah. And they don't hear Moses and Elijah. What they hear is the voice of the Son of God. And what they hear is the voice of God, the living voice of God, coming out of the realm of the glory in which they are participating in now, saying, this is My Son. Hear Him. So you have three men, Moses, (laughs) Elijah, and Jesus, being transfigured, and you got three sleepy disciples. Then you have the law and the prophets vanish away with just Jesus, now with three disciples partaking in his glory, because they are to become, their voice is to become the voice of the Son that replaces the voice of the law and the prophets. Or maybe doesn't replace it, that's probably a bad choice of words, but more fully opens up. So when Jesus comes to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does He do? He opens the Scriptures and says, don't you get it? The Scriptures were about the suffering of Messiah and, catch this, the entering into His glory. And when He enters into His glory, then the testimony of the law and the prophets are not necessary anymore because you have the Son. Now you need to hear the Son and follow the Son and participate in the Son because it's only through the Son that you can have life. It's only through union with the Son that you can really become like God. It's only by His presence working, His divine nature working in your humanity, transfiguring you and changing you and transforming you. Not you studying and working and trying to learn what is the difference between right and wrong, but learning how to walk with Jesus, learning how to hear His voice, learning how to live in the realm of the glory. So that, so that the book is not Lord. The confession of faith for the Christian is not the book is Lord. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That is not the confession of faith of the Christian. The confession of faith of the Christian is Jesus Christ is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, He is alive. And if He's alive, He's still speaking. If He's alive, He's still revealing. If He's alive, you can be joined in union with Him, and you can partake of His life, and you can live out of the voice of the Son of God that is inside your own heart. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we get that. How are you saved? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that means He can control you. He can speak to you. He can lead you. He can guide you. He can tell you what to do. You don't have to go by way of a book to get to Him anymore. Does that mean you throw out Scripture? No, you don't throw out Scripture. (laughs) But it's not an end in and of itself. And you don't go there to find out the knowledge of good and evil. You go there to find out what makes you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't go there to find rules and regulations. You go there to find a person. Because it is a light and it is a lamp. So the early church father Oregon, he said this in the second century. He said, the mercy seat, if any of you have ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, or if you've seen a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, you have an a angel facing this. Well, you have two angels facing each other, and you have a mercy seat right in the center. And Oregon said that the two cherubim represent the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they're looking at the person who sits enthroned on the mercy seat, who is Christ. So if, think about this, if the Word, the Old Testament, is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet, the purpose of the light is never to reveal itself. We don't have lights on in this room, so you can stare up at the light and say, Wow, that's a beautiful light. So that you can analyze the light. So I wonder if that's... I mean, they have so many different today, right? Is that fluorescent or is that... What do you call these? Is that LED? Is that... Is it incandescent? What kind of light is that? Because if you stare at the light, you miss what the light is revealing. See you take the light for granted you don't even think about the light the issue if I were to tell you greet one another you'd be greeting one another but it'd be a lot harder if it was pitch black in here But we turn the light on you don't say wow there's a light Let's come together and just look at the light Because the purpose of light is to reveal what's there. To wake you up from the unreality of Adam's nightmare. <sighs> to reveal what, what is real and true about God. Because what's real and true about God is found in the person of Christ. And you can know Him. That's why Paul's writings are so powerful. Because Paul's writings, you know, it's interesting about Paul, he does not talk about the miracles of Christ. He does not talk about the healings of Christ. He does not talk about the teachings of Christ. But all he talks about is Christ. But he talks about him in his glorification. And from that standpoint, reinterprets the Old Testament. And tells you, you can know this person because you're in this person. And this person's in you. And he's still speaking. St. Augustine, one of the church fathers said, God is closer to you than you are to yourself. Paul said, the word of faith that we preach is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. (laughs) He didn't say it was in a book. So that real life comes from relating to the real person of Christ. And how do you know you have the real thing? The testimony of the Scriptures. The Old Testament and the New Testament. They let me know this is what Christ is like, so I can recognize him when he shows up in my life. So, unless it leads you to an encounter with Christ himself, to walk with him, he's alive in the Spirit, to walk with him in the Spirit, to know him in the Spirit, to know him intimately, to know him as your friend. To be able to hear his voice speaking directly to you, you're not reading the Bible like a Christian. You're reading the Bible like fallen Adam. And you'll hear the voice of the serpent and the accuser more clearly, and the voice of the Father who wants to walk with you in the garden more distantly because you've taken Christ out of the center. And you're gazing at the light, but missing who the light reveals. So, if your devotion time didn't lead you to spend time with Jesus, it wasn't a devotion, it's just a religious thing that you did. Make sense?